This is the Saxo Market Call, the daily financial markets podcast across asset classes and around the world. Hello and welcome to the Saxo Market Call. It is Thursday, 16th of February, 2023. Market in a fairly positive mood yesterday, not uh, playing the script of uh, good news is bad news, apparently, at least um, uh, when we saw this retail sales figure for January at a very robust plus 3% on the headline. The core was also good looking there. Uh, that was relative to uh, expectations even, which were quite positive already. Uh, but often we see when we see a, a weak December, you'll see a strong January. And I think there's something wrong with some of the seasonals, as I discussed yesterday. Also, maybe uh, adding to the mix here was some mild weather in January. That can certainly affect behavior when you have significant swaths of the U.S. that are at pretty cold temperature areas. So it could certainly affect uh, activity on the ground when, when uh, weather's mild and pleasant. But, um, Peter, we just can't seem to get resolution. We're stuck in this range. We're neither following through higher nor are we breaking back down below support. Yields were fairly tame. They, they tried to advance a bit more yesterday, but sort of ending the day. Uh, without a lot of headlines, um, a decent 20-year bond auction in the U.S., or treasury auction, I should say. Um, the funny thing, that, but you and I are both saying we, we're not really very – we have a bad feeling about this market, but we don't really have anything to point to, I guess, uh, in, in, at least in terms of something like yesterday's session. No, it's um, it, it's it, it's just a feeling that, that we have got the, those animal spirits uh, out again and, and, and retail investors are, are you know – Pondering in the market, uh, big time again. Um, you can just you can feel that we we see that here at Saxo as well, and and these uh, these zero day options. We'll talk about that in a, in a few seconds. Uh, really, you know, all these Tesla, shen- yeah, yeah, all these shenanigans uh, or not shenanigans, but just pure speculation with a very 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 short uh, time maturity. But before we go into that discussion, John, I just quickly want to uh, to highlight that because I've sorted our theme baskets here on slide two on uh, one year, and the reason why I want to do that is that. We have a lot of discussions, um, also a lot of clients asking, you know, what about, you know, the technology, it's rallying a lot, what's your view on it, et cetera, et cetera. We just put out our Q1 outlook where we said, you know, it's still the physical world versus the digital world. That doesn't really rhyme uh, quite well with what has, what has, ha- has happened um, this year so far. I just want to point out that, you know, when we talk about momentum factors, which I think arguably is one of the best well-tested, very long-term uh, factors out there in the equity market and also across other markets, you typically, the very simplistic one is, you know, you have the 12-month change in a given instrument, but then you subtract the the past months because if if the majority of your 12-month performance is driven by the past months because you have mean reversion effects in the short term, um, then it's not good. So you always remove that. So And if you look at the one-year chart and you sort of subtract what has happened year to date, which is sort of the last month, I would still argue that if you if you look across that, then, you know, physical um, themes like defense, you know, energy in its different shapes, nuclear power, renewable energy, commodities, logistics, um, are still doing well, construction, etc. So I still think that the, the, this those theme and our overall theme of the Q1 is still intact, but right now it is really uh, under assault from what's happening in the market. But I think we should go to slide three, John, because I think it's an interesting discussion, this developments that we have seen in equity markets with the derivatives markets taking over and also retail investors suddenly becoming a very big force in, in options. Yes, but it's not, as they're saying, these zero days to expiry options, so very low, uh, a bit lottery ticket type behavior. You buy something significantly out of the money or um, in either direction hoping for 
the market to swing and, and something like Tesla options is, is obvious there, but although Tesla options are, are generally weekly, whereas the S&P 500 uh, e-mini options, you can get them all the way down to a daily basis. So zero DTE being those options that expire actually on the day uh, you are trading them. Uh, but institutional traders heavy in this space. And, and on the right there on slide three, we, uh, there's one of the major um, gurus out there on options, uh, JP Morgan's Kalanovich, uh, talking about the risk of Almageddon 2. Uh, Almageddon 1, if you don't recall, was back in uh, early 2018 when there was a huge blow-up in volatility, some very leveraged plays in the market, as well as apparently some of these um, you know, multiple uh, delta or what do you call it, multiple exposures to the, these odd ETFs that were attempting to replicate a three times exposure on any given day uh, to the upside or downside in equity. So you saw a weird vacuum to the upside and then a, a big crash uh, back then. It's not something that's necessarily a structural risk um, because, after all, you have two-sided – it's a two-sided situation, two-sided book. Anybody who's a buyer that has to be a seller, um, and, and it's fairly transparent. But I think it does present tremendous risks intraday, uh, something uh, on some scale comparison to, to, to 1987, if, if maybe not as bad, but still a, a significant risk. And people that are trading in leveraged basis in this, in this space specifically, but just in the market, just need to be aware of, of this – sort of smoldering risk in the background. And you can see the percentages of the S&P options volume that are these zero day, days to expiry options pushing towards 50% uh, relative to, uh, you know, I think we've shown this, shown this chart before on the lower right there from Goldman, you know, something like 10x of what what was the behavior just uh, some some uh, several years ago. Yes, you can argue that, that because of those percentages have, have almost gone to 50%, we have shortened the our time horizons on what we do in financial markets, and uh, you can argue that that uh, you know signals that we've become more. It has become a much more speculative market. That that would be one uh, type of interpretation of what we're seeing. And yeah, it's um, I I I <clears throat> I, I don't like it, but how it how it ends, I, I don't think. I, I'm I'm not sure. I agree totally with uh, Kolanovic here that it is potentially setting ourselves up for Volmageddon 2.0 because I think the. The volatility event of 2018 was structurally a very different thing than, as you say, with, with a zero day to expiry options. Um, it, it doesn't really feel like the same thing. Yeah, but it does feel pretty awkward when you get, like we talked about the CPI circus. That's the second time this has happened in recent months where we get these pumps and dumps uh, in the scale of minutes, uh, multiple percentages uh, or percent or more, just air gaps that hit the market when the, the gamma exposure has to get hedged. Uh, for those that are holding uh, the short side of the, of the equation, whatever. So short volatility side of the equation. It's uh, it's just dodgy stuff. It's just something to be aware of. And then on the left there, just a small uh, interesting tweet I saw from Brent Donnelly. He's a great follow on Twitter. He's also written a great book about trading FX, by the way. Um, one of the few specifically FX books I would ever recommend. Uh, so just look into that. But he just points out an interesting seasonal chart there saying that potentially that little bump you see in the uh, sort of average return since uh, 1990 could have something to do with with the rotation from 401k funds and uh, sort of tax refunds coming into the market and that we could be hitting a soft spot in terms of potential inflows. But what it's worth, just an interesting uh, a seasonal chart there. But uh, you're continuing your thoughts here, Peter, on in inflation as we're all waiting for the next uh, next signals there. Yeah, we, we, we already discussed the January report, but uh, on the actual day, and I think the day after, I, I failed to get the uh, the Fed, Atlanta Fed's uh, sticky inflation. I think maybe it takes a time for them to compute uh, this index. Uh, so I looked it up on the uh, in my, on my terminal, the Bloomberg terminal this morning, and um, I just, 
is just still hovering around this six and a half percent annualized on the on the core sticky twelve months inflation. You can argue that the three month um, on some of these uh, of these uh, indices, sticky indices, are you know, and an, on an annualized basis have come down. But I, I think this one is is um, has the you know the twelve month perspective. I, I, the reason why I'm putting it up here is that I think that the whole discussion about stickiness is interesting. But the more important discussion, as we've talked so much about on this podcast, is where we will settle on inflation. And and I think it takes us naturally to the to the next slide, which is uh, slide five, where this is you know since late two thousand fifteen, I've, I've taken the uh, the total return index unhedged in in dollar terms, the um, the seven to ten year benchmark index in U.S. Treasuries, and then I've just subtracted the um, the headline CPI index, the um, so the benchmark CPI index, which is used for um, for a lot of things in the U.S. by the U.S. government for you know. Uh, transfer payments and you know the overall price level of the economy, and you can see here that we, we in real terms, we have destroyed somewhere between fifteen and twenty percent of of wealth on a total return basis in in U.S. long dated Treasuries here. And my point is that that tells you that to some extent the bond market got inflation wrong. Uh, we all got inflation wrong, I think. And and the, but I think the key question here, and I said that to you before we have had this discussion, John, and I said it on the podcast the other day. We we currently we closed at three point eight percent in the U.S. ten year yield. How does that fit with the longer term inflation? Is it the appropriate level? And 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 does the inversion actually make sense because it's just a tight policy rate until we get back down to that round three and a half percent inflation, or? If we have inflation at four, four and a half percent, is three and a half, sorry, three point eight percent in the U.S. ten years still, you know, the the level that the bond market is willing to accept is the bond bond market willing to accept actually a negative real rate return for an entire decade? I think that's sort of the question I have. Uh, yeah, and and similar to that, in the past, if you've had very high inflation, you continue to expect the. Um uh, if you're expecting the central bank to to get the upper hand and to to beat the to slay the inflation dragon, they're going to keep hiking until they have. So therefore, we need to put uh, terminal uh, Fed uh, rate at seven percent or something or six percent, um, which is some seventy five basis points. If you take six percent north of where it is now, does the ten year still assume that the inflation dragon is slayed and maybe it rises some uh, to incorporate a higher you know sort of belly yield curve in the meantime, but only rises. Uh, uh, 50 basis points. Therefore, the inversion becomes even more profound. I mean, that seems to be the pattern now. So, if uh, I think that as we've talked about before, the the interesting thing would be a uh, a steepening yield curve on some sort of niggling sense or uncomfortable sense that maybe the central banks are never going to fully get ahead of inflation. Simply has not happened, and we still just continue to see a profound inversion of the yield curve relative to. I think it's quite profound, especially given what the absolute. Uh, magnitude of interest rates is. I mean, think about the last time we got above these interest rates, it was when when yields were 10 plus percent, even 15 plus percent at some times uh, in the early 80s. Yeah, and uh, w- one of our guys from our wealth management unit, he came by the desk uh, the other day and he, and he asked me, so Peter, there's something I don't understand. So why is the equity market trading where it's trading, given that we, we are at the current 10-year interest rate level compared to when we were at 3.8 last time. There's a disconnect there. We had a much higher absolute equity level in the S&P 500 relative to the same level in the in the in US 10-year. And uh, I said that it's probably a combination that, you know, investors are willing to, you know, accept a lower equity wish premium. So animal spirits in a, in a, in a, in a, in a layman's term. It's probably one explanation. And then also, I think the last time we were at 3.8%, the, the interest rate market or the, you know, bond yields were still rising. And I think at that point in time, the probability for a recession was much higher 
also in the in you know in the both in the narrative but also in the in the way everything was priced. Um, when was the last time interest rates were at three point eight percent? That's a long time ago, right? Uh, what is the U.S. nominal economy now versus the U.S. nominal economy back uh, then? But, uh, yeah, so if, if it's two X, then at no, least he, if, if equities are simply following the the uh, he's comparing economy. he's comparing to the three point eight percent level we had like six or seven months ago. Oh, okay. Before we okay, sort sorry, of, sorry, yes. Yeah, okay, exactly. Different. Yeah, yeah, and exactly, exactly as you say, is the fear, the assumption is yes that we're going to have Fed significant Fed easing. We've still achieved that sort of the market still has that expectation function that I think I would think would be the key explanatory factor. Exactly. Sorry, I thought you were referring back to uh, perhaps as far back as 2007 <laughs> or something. Old, the old days, yeah, back when I was in my, uh, I won't say my late 30s, something like that. Uh, moving swiftly along. And and just by by the way, small note on the inflation front, um, hopefully we'll have Ola back on the show tomorrow to talk commodities. So we've had a few developments, uh, gold especially uh, heavy with these higher yields. Quite interesting levels that's worked into that 1830 area is just above some key Fibonacci retracements. So that's that's the first little key leg there. 1809 would be another one uh, to the downside. That was a big level on the way up. But the crude oil market is kind of interesting getting uh, working into the top of the range. Just have it on your radar as uh, we saw a ridiculously strong build of 16 million barrels in the U.S. Uh, inventories data yesterday. Just an absurd figure. And yet we're seeing the uh, uh, we're seeing the oil price back higher. So just wanted to highlight that. And then on FX, not a whole lot going on this morning. And overnight, we saw that dollar strengthening move, uh, weakening a bit, sort of softening off a little bit. Dollar yen was a big mover yesterday. And you can see on the FX board on slide six that the, the yen trending uh, lower. That makes sense. And that fits well with uh, the Bank of Japan doing massive QE to defend its yield curve control policy. Ironically, as we've talked about, as it's supposedly moving towards some nominal uh, normalization or tightening. Uh, but de facto still having to to do significant easing to defend the policy. Um, dollar edging stronger, but just not quite seeing the deal. We need to see it follow through to to argue that it's sort of breaking free and in a new significant uptrend. Uh, one particularly weak currency, though, uh, and, and makes the dollar look better, is uh, sterling after the soft CPI figures yesterday. I put in a chart there on, on, uh, on the left there. We hit just below 120 at times yesterday. Really... Obvious levels coming into view, the pivot low there below 119.50 and, and the 200-day moving average around the same level. So interesting to see if we see some kind of capitulation in cable. Aussie, a, a classic example of its behavior overnight. We see a weak jobs data or, or weak jobs data for January with the unemployment rate uh, uh, popping up a little bit to 5.7% and a very ugly payrolls change, minus 43K on the full time on that. And yet, the market ignores that and instead notices that the copper price perked up and, and so Aussie perked up as well. Uh, very clear uh, focus on the whole China recovery and copper story, I think, uh, for something like the Aussie dollar. And you see that negative gold and silver uh, reading there uh, in terms of the trend versus the G10 plus CNH currencies. All right. And, and today, well, I'll get to the macro calendar uh, shortly. There are a couple of equity stories worth watching. One of the big uh, speculative favorites during the pandemic, Peter Shopify, uh, reporting some weak earnings after the close, and that that saw that stock down ten percent. Yeah, it's. Um, I I was <clears throat> I was wondering what happened uh, on on that outlook from Shopify because the U.S. retail sales and some of the macroeconomic data we have got lately would support a strong consumption outlook, but then Shopify being the biggest, the world's biggest e-commerce platform, so you have a lot of e-commerce businesses on that platform. Um, and Shopify put out this Q1 revenue outlook, high teen growth, missing 20% expected 
And that's also a slowdown from, from Q4, which was, was actually quite good. So the shares were down 10% in extended trading, both in Canada and the US. I, I, th- I just I just think it from a macro perspective it's an interesting it's an interesting outlook. I still I still think the growth rate itself is still healthy. It's just against those estimates and 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 I, I think it was an interesting given the backdrop we had from the U.S. retail sales, which by itself were also quite crazy yesterday. Yeah, it's a classic example also when when a company is valued for uh, even though you get to solid growth, it's when it's valued for even more significant growth. You just hit these air pockets on, on reporting when there's just the least miss in the story. That's the classic example of that. Exactly. Um, be, talking about the consumer, um, uh, maybe first, uh, so Airbus, um, they are delaying their uh, target for a, the A320 uh, to 2026. They have this target of uh, 75 uh, planes being produced uh, per month. Um, they also had an, an outlook for their operating income, which was below estimates for, for this year. So um, I haven't seen the price reaction yet to Airbus, but I suspect that was not uh, is not positive. Uh, Nestle, on the other hand, they're guiding organic revenue growth at six to eight percent. It is that's above the, where the market is uh, priced right now. And um, but they have an interesting comment in their press release. They um, basically saying that they have reached the limit of their pricing power. So they saw the volume dropping 2.6% in Q4. That was the second consecutive quarter of volume uh, dropping. Um, quite interesting because it means if Nestle, with all its pricing power and strong brands, if they have if they have got closer to this limit, and let's say we haven't seen it yet, and that's why I'm really looking forward to get John on, uh, sorry, uh, Ulle back on the show with the, the Chinese reopening because we haven't really seen a response yet in commodities, but... If we suddenly see a, a response in commodities, labor markets remain positive. Then you have then you have those two engines or factors eating into into your margins. And then if you have hit the limit of your pricing power, then then your margins is really going to uh, not do well. Yeah. And if we look at the earnings to watch on the uh, on the next uh, slide, so that would be slide eight. Is it slide eight? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've highlighted the uh, applied materials. Um, U.S. semiconductor company. They do, they do uh, semiconductor equipment. We we've already got results from the from a lot of semi, semiconductors already. Demand is robust, and uh, I don't think there is a lot of a uh, lot of uh, uncertainty around this earnings release from applied materials. Um, you want to bring in though? Actually, uh, just that uh, triggered my my thoughts on this uh, ASML story you highlighted this morning. Very interesting story uh, from from the leading uh, maker of that very exotic equipment for the etching of of the chips. Yeah. So ASML has announced to the market that they have been they have been made aware of and they had have seen that the a Chinese employee has apparently accessed the central repository some software that Siemens deliver for uh, industrial companies to ha- hold all their software and other uh, IP that everyone that is involved with that part of the manufacturing can access this employee accessed that and stole a lot of uh, key intellectual property rights and um, it's um, it's a big story uh, because this is a very advanced company. They live off this intellectual property rights and now has been stolen and it's still un- unclear what the damage is and how much was actually stolen. Interesting story there and uh, yeah, one to follow. In terms of reprisals, there's all this uh, exchange on the geopolitical front between the US and China on these uh, this, uh, I have to admit, stupid balloon story or maybe it's not stupid if it has uh, further consequences. Uh, it can, plays politi- The way it plays politically is very important because just like during the Cold War, you couldn't be tough enough on China, so when there's a balloon, everyone has to scramble jets and, and shoot balloons down with uh, the latest missiles and F-22 jets and what have you. So uh, just 
yeah, what are we supposed to do with it? But we have to watch out for actual material consequences in terms of sanctions uh, from here. But it doesn't seem to be there's a lot of different ways that this uh, general escalation can go other than in the bad direction, uh, at least in terms of, uh, uh, you know, deglobalization and ongoing uh, sort of, what do you call it, divorce of this uh, chimerica, as some would call it. All right. Let's go to the calendar. I don't want to go through all these central bank speakers, but there are some uh, pretty prominent performances from uh, a number of the smaller G10 economies, the Bank of Canada, uh, Noise Bank, and uh, not least uh, RBA Governor Lowe. He's been under fire for a closed-door meeting with bankers, and he's before uh, the House in a hearing overnight. So watch for those. We have uh, some some interesting uh, U.S. housing data, the housing starts and building permits. Are we seeing a little bit of a reheating or at least a, a rebound in some of the U.S. housing uh, data. We saw the NAHB far uh, above expectations yesterday, hitting 42. Uh, that's a seven-point advance in the survey for February, and that's a five-month high. So that impact of the big rate shock is clearly fading and fading fairly fast there. Uh, do we see that corroborated in some of the other data? And the weekly jobless claims after four weeks in a row, sub 200K, uh, another one to watch. There's a pretty interesting seasonality that happens into, into the new year. And uh, so far, that's as uh, in terms of jobs and job hires and job firings. And so far, that that's a particular survey continues to suggest a very, very tight U.S. jobs market. We also have the natural gas storage change. Uh, and I'd like to talk to Ula about natural gas as well as it's uh, just suffering down at the very low end of its price, stretching back quite some time. That's about it for today. And as you see, Friday is not offering anything on the macro calendar, either of note. So we'll see what this market does uh, and see where animal spirits take us as we're in this nervous zone with uh, uh, yields pressing at the high end of the range in many cases. It's a very interesting cocktail. And we'll be back tomorrow with the next Saxo Market Call. Thanks for listening. This has been the Saxo Market Call. For feedback and questions, reach out to us on Twitter at Saxo Market Call or by email, marketcall at saxobank.com. <laughs>